Welcome to episode two of The Psychologist of the Eternal Womanly. In the first part, I considered the charge of misogyny that I have heard many different people levy against Nietzsche. I did make some arguments in favor of my belief, I suppose, that Nietzsche is is a man who actually respects the complete woman, the exceptional woman, the higher woman, the noble woman. And I don't think any of those arguments, especially upon re-listening to the podcast, are really very compelling in any way. It's just my feeling that I really highly value the complete woman as Nietzsche describes her, and I wish to form myself into the image of that ideal. I personally don't feel hated by Nietzsche, and that's really the the foundation of my argument, is just that when I interact with these writings, there's nothing about them that makes me feel discriminated against or hated or disrespected. And um, so I'm not offering any sort of philosophical or logical argument. It's just a feelingful, emotional, sort of feminine reply at best. I will continue in that endeavor, however, in the, um, on the off chance that somebody finds it worthwhile. Today I wanted to uh, probably revisit some of the sections that we considered in the last episode from Beyond Good and Evil. But I wanted to add into the mix today a section from Thus Spoke Zarathustra. This one is entitled On Old and Young Women. The translation that I have is a public domain translation. It's an older translation and therefore it uses quite archaic language. So it's got that sort of old King James Version Bible language, um, which I love, but I understand it can be a little distracting from the content. I will try to read slowly and clearly so that you can make as much sense as possible from the text. I'm going to read uh, again, in, you know, for the same reason, just a, a small section of it at a time and then pause to make my comments so that the archaic language does not become too soporific and put everybody to sleep. We'll start at the beginning, on old and young women. Quote, Why stealest thou along so furtively in the twilight, Zarathustra? And what hidest thou so carefully under thy mantle? Is it a treasure that hath been given thee, or a child that hath been born to thee? Or goest thou thyself on a thief's errand, thou friend of evil? Verily, my brother, said Zarathustra, it is a treasure that hath been given me. It is a little truth which I carry. But it is naughty, like a young child, and if I hold not its mouth, it screameth too loudly. As I went on my way alone today, at the hour when the sun declineth, there met me an old woman, and she spake thus unto my soul. Much hath Zarathustra spoken also to us women, but never spake he unto us concerning woman. And I answered her, Concerning woman, one should only talk unto men. Talk also unto me of woman, said she. I am old enough to forget it presently. And I obliged the woman, and spake thus unto her. End quote. 
We'll pause there so that I can briefly establish my credentials to first read and secondly comment on this section. I too am an old woman. At least I am past uh, the fertile window of my youth and I feel that I will easily forget everything that happens here, but more importantly that none of it is very offensive to me. Zarathustra claims that this is not a topic that should be discussed in mixed company, if you will, and at first is reticent and unwilling to discuss woman with a woman, but the old woman obviously convinces him of her capacity to tolerate and perhaps even understand what he has to say and he feels willing to offer it to her. When I first discovered this passage, I was a young woman, and I was at least confused by it, probably offended at least a little bit, unable to digest it fully. I was in college, you know, in a liberal university, being very effectively indoctrinated into the feminist ideology as well as all other aspects of the liberal progressive ideology and it was a bit discordant for me to discover this um, this text I did feel such an affinity for Nietzsche and I've always loved his writing even as an 18 year old girl at which point I'm sure I understood maybe five percent of what he was talking about and I certainly didn't understand this as an old woman, however, I can say that I do understand all of these things. None of them seem too scandalous to me, and all of them seem to be just rather matter-of-fact. So, with those credentials established, let's consider what Zarathustra speaks to the old woman. Quote, Everything in woman is a riddle, and everything in woman hath one solution. It is called pregnancy. Man is, for woman, a means. The purpose is always the child." End quote. This, I understand how this could be perceived as disrespectful towards woman. Nietzsche is basically saying that all she's good for is making babies, right? The only thing that, you know, a woman is just a big confusing mess until she's pregnant and then she makes sense not only to herself but perhaps to the people around her. He didn't say that. I, I embellished quite a bit in saying that. Uh, this section does reminisce um, section 239 of Beyond Good and Evil which we considered in part in the last episode. In this uh, section Nietzsche refers to a woman's, quote, first and last function, that of bearing robust children, end quote. In this section, Nietzsche is complaining about woman being ruined by the learned asses of the masculine sex, and I'll just read it to you um, in, in an abridged form. So, quote, there are enough idiotic friends and corruptors of woman among the learned asses of the masculine sex who advise woman to defeminize herself in this manner and to imitate all the stupidities from which man in Europe, European manliness, suffers, who would like to lower woman to general culture, indeed even to newspaper reading and meddling with politics. Here and there they wish even so to make women into free spirits and literary workers, 
as though a woman without piety would not be something perfectly obnoxious or ludicrous to a profound and godless man. Almost everywhere her nerves are being ruined by the most moralized and dangerous kind of music, our latest German music, and she is daily being made more hysterical and more incapable of fulfilling her first and last function, that of bearing robust children. End quote. Firstly, as to the, quote, learned asses of the masculine sex who advise women to defeminize herself in this manner, end quote, I made a, an argument in the last episode, um, it's kind of a conspiracy theory argument, with the characteristic amount of scientific evidence to support uh, that conspiracy theory. So don't believe me, you know, unless it feels good, I guess is what I'm saying. Anyways, I made this argument that beta males, you know, lower ranking males, have certain motives for participating in the creation and the propagation of the feminist ideology. It doesn't have to be, you know, and I said this last time, like a conscious thing that they all sort of got together at beta male club and decided to institute, but there are reasons I asserted that feminism may not just be the invention of some wacky women and um, that a certain type of men might be rewarded by this type of ideology and a social situation in which women are um, also believing this ideology. I'll read to you from the Gay Science section 68 in order to sort of amplify that quote-unquote argument that I'm making, even though it's by no means a scientific or logical argument. It's just an assertion um, based on my feelings. Will and willingness, quote, Someone brought a youth to a wise man and said, See, this is one who is being corrupted by women. The wise man shook his head and smiled. It is men, he called out, who corrupt women. And everything that women lack should be atoned for and improved in men. For man creates for himself the ideal of woman, and woman molds herself according to this ideal. You are too tender-hearted towards woman said one of the bystanders, you do not know them. The wise man answered, man's attribute is will, woman's attribute is willingness. Such is the law of the sexes verily a hard law for women. All human beings are innocent of its existence. Women, however, are doubly innocent. Who could have enough of salve and gentleness for them? What about salve? What about gentleness? called out another person in the crowd. We must educate women better. We must educate men better, said the wise men, and made a sign to the youth to follow him. The youth, however, did not follow him. I think it's the type of men who would agree with the statements made in this, um, in this section, especially man's attribute is will and woman's attribute is willingness. That might also be the type of men who accuse women of inventing such a stupid idea as feminism and then, like I said last time, shoving it down everybody's throat. If women are making up bad ideas, um, if men want to find fault with women for doing so, it might be helpful to remember that man's attribute is will and women's is willing and a woman is more easily inclined to shape herself into the ideal that the men create for her. And, you know, perhaps feminism was one of those male-created ideals to which 
women have been attempting in many different ways to conform themselves. I, speaking from my own experience, recognize that for many years of my life, I attempted to conform myself to the ideal of feminism because I thought that's what men wanted from me. I thought that that's what was expected of me. It seems a bit contradictory, but I do see in myself a very innocent and feminine desire to be pleasing, to be willing to conform myself to an ideal. So maybe we need better ideas. Maybe men need to come up with a better idea than feminism that women can then conform to. Secondly, um, just going back to that Beyond Good and Evil section 239, I also love the line about um, how, quote, a woman without piety would be something perfectly obnoxious or ludicrous to a profound and godless man. I am a pious woman, not Christian. Um, I do, I do believe in God and Jesus and angels and demons and all manner of what Nietzsche would call imaginary beings, um, members of the other world and superstitions. I'm not, you know, super invested in the idea that there is some sort of metaphysical plane that we can't access from our human experience here. It doesn't need to be true to me, but I really do love, I love the emotional force that's been invested into these ideas over the millennia. And, and they're not just Christian ideas, right? It's all, pagan people had similar, you know, perhaps their beings, their sort of extra human beings were not living in a different metaphysical realm in kind of the way that Christian angels and demons and God live in this sort of other world. I think the pagans experienced their daemons and jinn and fairies and such things as those to be really living in some part of this real world. And that's how I like to think of those 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 sort of superstitions. And it's fine with me that they're superstitions. I it doesn't have to make sense or be scientifically plausible. I just, I really, I really like to sort of piggyback on and like ride the coattails of this, you know, all the, like I said, the emotional investment that has been made into these images and these metaphors and these myths. Um, I frequently refer to demons. If I uh, yield to a compulsion to eat too much food or whatever, which is like my addictive behavior of choice, I will claim uh, in good faith <laughs> that a demon has gotten a hold of me and made me do this thing that I really don't want to do, that really the better part of myself, the part of myself with which I'm identified, doesn't want to participate in that behavior and it's not that I actually believe that a demon is inhabiting my body or forcing me to do something, but it's just so efficient to just say demon because everyone who is listening to me basically knows what I'm gesturing to, even if they think I'm a little kooky for uh, using such archaic and unscientific ideas. I think the idea of demon, if I had to translate it into Nietzschean language, would just be like a like you know Nietzsche talks about the will to power. I I would think a demon is like the will to decadence or some sort of force of decadence that gets in and corrupts life, that gets in and prevents life from overcoming itself and sustaining itself and reproducing itself. 
language makes it really difficult to talk about and you know the way that we understand ourselves as this sort of united being it makes it very difficult to talk about ourselves and the experiences that we have in our life when we feel overtaken by these naughty impulses and when we do the things that we want not to do and can't do the things that we want to do like if we consider ourselves to be this sort of united single body with like one single soul inside of it it's really difficult to talk about why it is that our soul that wants to you know in my case be thin and fit and beautiful then does these totally counterproductive behaviors like eating way too much food Nietzsche has a really like a much more clever way of talking about this than having to refer to demons and other sort of imaginary beings of the celestial or infernal realms in section 19 of beyond good and evil he is considering the idea of free will he says quote freedom of will that is the expression for the complex state of delight of the person exercising volition who commands and at the same time identifies himself with the executor of the order who as such enjoys also the triumph over obstacles but thinks within himself that it was really his own will that overcame them in this way the person exercising volition adds the feelings of delight of his successful executive instruments the useful underwills or undersouls Indeed, our body is but a social structure composed of many souls, to his feelings of delight as a commander. L'effet c'est moi. That's, please forgive me for my horrible pronunciation. I assume that's French and it means something like the effect is mine or the effect was me. Back to the text. What happens here is what happens in every well-constructed and happy commonwealth namely that the governing class identifies itself with the successes of the commonwealth. In all willing, it is absolutely a question of commanding and obeying on the basis, as already said, of a social structure composed of many souls. So Nietzsche uses the idea of the soul here, but he doesn't use it in the sense that I think maybe a Christian believer might understand it. It seems like a Christians believe in their soul as as this sort of indivisible, immortal, very definite thing that will survive their body and go on to have this eternal existence in another realm, and that their soul in some level really exceeds the importance of their body for that reason. Um, so Nietzsche does put soul in little air quotes or whatever when he is talking about it in this section, but it, you can see that he also finds he also notices the sort of historical importance and the emotional significance that's been invested into that word even though he wants to use it differently and describe and understand what a soul is differently he still appeals to that word and I think that's what I do when I use the word demons like I said though the the sort of mental model that Nietzsche has created here is quite a lot more elegant and sophisticated than my uh, my claims that demons have possessed my body. So what he essentially says is that your body is like a little ecosystem. It's it's like a little political system, if you will, of all these different underwills or undersouls. So your will is not this united thing. Neither is your soul. Neither is your body, nor anything else about your being. You are a multiplicity of drives and different impulses and I suppose you're probably 
you're probably identified with one of those impulses at any given time. You know, you probably don't feel yourself to be in any moment this multiplicity of different beings. But whatever the moment calls for, you identify with the will that is able to execute what that moment requires for you. So when you feel like your will is free, it's because you're identified with this, whichever soul is currently in command of your internal commonwealth. And if that soul is leading you on to do things that you still feel proud about later, then you really feel like your will is free, right? Like you've done, you've acted in such a way that you still feel committed to who you are as a person after you're done with it. In contrast to that, if you, if one of those undersouls, like in, in my case, if a really hungry little snacky undersoul somehow takes over command of the commonwealth, maybe because I'm in a stressful situation or I'm emotionally overwhelmed or that, that part of me that I really identify with the woman of whom I'm proud, she sort of loses her command and this other hungry little binge eating undersoul comes into control of the commonwealth and convinces everybody that the best course of action is to eat a pint of ice cream and a sleeve of Oreos and after I'm done with that I don't feel very excited about it it doesn't really feel like a victory to me and so I I feel you know that I've been possessed by some alien being that maybe do something against my interest but really it is just a, a sub part of my multiplicity of souls or wills or drives and it is doing something that serves me in some way, even though it has many unwanted negative side effects. There is something like too painful for me to handle in those moments, and that behavior does anesthetize that pain to some degree that I believe somewhere prevents me from maybe having a psychotic break or encountering some sort of emotional difficulty that would be even more problematic than the consequences of eating a pint of ice cream and a sleeve of Oreos. But I don't feel free in that moment, right? I'm not identified with the executor of my my better will, the will that I prefer more, the will that I want more highly, this will to be a powerful, healthy, thin, fit, beautiful woman. I use the word demon because it's just easier than sort of explaining that whole model, even though it is a really efficient model that Nietzsche has has created there. It only came to my attention very recently, so the best model that I had was the idea of demons. I similarly like to use the word God for that reason. Like I said, I am not a Christian, so I don't mean Jehovah or Jesus Christ when I say God. I think I'm trying to describe some aspect of reality when I use the word God, but I would have to have like one million different PhDs in all of the sciences in order to explain that part of reality in some scientific or mechanistic or cause and effect kind of way. And it just seems easier to me to say God because again, people mostly know what I mean and they get this sort of emotional, visceral reaction to the word that allows me to bypass all of this rational appeal and this model making and this language using which is so messy anyways and just sort of get right to the gut of the matter and express what it is that I'm trying to say. There is some degree of piety there, like I really do believe that the divine exists and that I can have a relationship with that thing that is God and 
it is a little bit, I suppose my beliefs are a bit more pagan in orientation. I learned uh, recently, I was watching Wondrium, a lecture series about the Roman Republic. So this is, you know, before the Roman Empire in the uh, first millennia BC. And one of their, like, writers or... I don't know, war commanders or something, one of them said that he believed that the Roman Republic had conquered the whole world because they were the most pious people on the face of the earth. And for the Roman person, at that point, Rome was not a Christian nation. It was a pagan nation. And their piety involved just this sort of constant relationship to the gods. Like every aspect of their life was conducted, you know, in service to the gods, or at least in relationship to them, and in a willingness to surrender to what the gods had to say. So I think that's my kind of piety, that that pagan piety, but it's pious nonetheless. Um, so let's go back to the Zarathustra passage. He says, quote, two different things wanteth the true man, danger and diversion. Therefore wanteth he woman as the most dangerous plaything. Man shall be trained for war, and woman for the recreation of the warrior. All else is folly. Two sweet fruits, these the warrior liketh not. Therefore liketh he woman. Bitter is even the sweetest woman. Better than man doth woman understand children, but man is more childish than woman. In the true man there is a child hidden, it wanteth to play. Up then, ye woman, and discover the child in man. A plaything let woman be, pure and fine like the precious stone, illumined with the virtues of a world not yet come. End quote. It seems to me like religion is, like in its truest sense, as a, as a set of rituals, not so much as a set of dogmatic creeds, but as a set of embodied, enacted rites. It seems like religion in that sense is actually a very diverting game. There's the show Vikings from the History Channel, and I remember an episode, it was very near the beginning of the series, as many, many years ago now that I saw it, so I'm fuzzy on the details, but Lagertha is performing a religious ritual. I think they sacrificed an animal, and she has a bowl of the animal's blood, She's wearing a white robe, and they're all out as a community in a grove somewhere, and it's night. And she has a switch, like a holly branch, that she is dipping in the blood and then flicking blood so that it splatters the faces and bodies of the people that are present at the ceremony. And there's a shot of her in this white robe chanting in this sort of state of ecstasy and splattered in blood. You know, I'm certainly crazy, I'm a little bit crazy at least, but I, I think that looks so fun. I really, I wish in a lot of ways that we had more access to religious rituals. Um, it is truly a godless culture in which we live and uh, we don't get to play those games. And I think those are games, those games of religious, religious rites are the games that women are very good at playing and um, that, you know, dancing and drumming by the fire and creating these, these games, really they're games, right? You get these little objects that you invest all this religious significance into them and you 
move them and process them and place them in certain ways and you gather precious things from the environment and you burn things like sage and incense and you offer animals like you know they were whenever they were offering an animal and animal sacrifice is prevalent it's ubiquitous in the ancient world it's not just something that happened in the viking culture it happened in you know the ancient indian culture it happened obviously you can read about it in the bible it happened in the tribe of israel the ancient israel culture it happened you know probably everywhere and the primary fun it happened in rome and the primary function of the sacrifice was really to provide meat to the community to eat um but it was you know such a terrifying and ecstatic experience to take the life of an animal and i think people honored that really difficult and beautiful task that they had to perform to feed themselves and to provide for the community so they turned it into this game basically where they would offer the animal to the god and a whole ceremony arose around the practice of killing this animal and the understanding was that the god fed off of the smell the smell of the burnt offering is what fed the god and the people you know and eventually probably more just the priests but the people got to eat the meat it it was just a way of eating meat in a very honorable fashion that allowed the people to honor the passing of this animal's life and to give gratitude to the gods for that life which fed their life like nietzsche says right all life exists at the expense of other life i think these ancient cultures far better than our own culture does honored that as like a divine truth as something that was worthy of attention and devotion and reverence and those are the games that i would love to be able to play as a woman those are dangerous games for sure they're not like craft time or um bouncy houses like it's not that kind of fun i suppose but it is playful nevertheless like at least in the sense that you are playing a role if you hold a ceremony like that or conduct it or even if you attend a ceremony like that like you get to step out of your normal consciousness of who you are in the sort of mundane economy or the mundane social uh system and you get to traffic with these sort of yeah imaginary friends <laughs> like demons and fairies and gods but like that's also a game right that's how children play they make up friends that they get to interact with and they create these really elaborate little rituals of interaction with those friends and i think that's what humans were doing in our ancient past um and probably far into our prehistory when we were engaging these religious rites the religions that stand there's not a lot of room within those religions to sort of play these games to engage in these rites in a very solemn but nevertheless playful way and i do miss that and i wish for that and this is probably another one of my nostalgic fantasies you know imagining this world in which i'm this beautiful priestess like lagertha in the vikings and i have this amazingly powerful beautiful warrior husband that's going out and finding new lands for us to conquer and gathering wealth for us and fighting off the bad guys protecting our land protecting our people like i know this is just another one of those fantastical things but 
it is um, encapsulated here in what Zarathustra describes about the relationship between the woman as the plaything and the man as the warrior. It does seem very nice to me. We'll go on in Zarathustra. Quote, Let the beam of a star shine in your love. Let your hopes say, May I bear the Superman. In your love let there be valor. With your love shall ye assail him who inspireth you with fear. In your love be your honor. Little doth woman understand otherwise about honor. But let this be your honor, always to love more than ye are loved, and never to be the second. Let man fear woman when she loveth, then maketh she every sacrifice, and everything else she regardeth as worthless. Let man fear woman when she hateth, for man in his innermost soul is merely evil, woman, however, is mean. Uh, so let the beam of a star shine in your love. Let your hope say, may I bear the Superman. This reminds me of, speaking of religions, the Hail Mary prayer. Though I am not a Christian, I do like to go to Catholic Mass because I do think it is one of the only places left where you can witness religious ritual in any real way, in, at least in a sort of interesting way. Um, and they say, obviously, in the Mass, the Hail Mary prayer very frequently. I like the first half of it a lot. Uh, I'll, I'll quote that to you in case you don't know how it goes. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Uh, I'm not going to tell the second half of the prayer because it doesn't fit into my argument here or my story here. It's a little bit more like exclusively Christian in its implications. But I like this first half. I think it sounds like a benediction that honors that same impulse in woman that let the beam of a star shine in your love. Let your hope say, may I bear the Superman. I would think this prayer says, hail woman, full of grace. The Lord, as in the most powerful man, like the forefather of the overman, the Lord is with thee. He chose you. As water finds its own level, this magnificent man has found and chosen you, a woman full of grace. And you two will make a baby together, and the grace of the woman and the power of the man will combine together into this baby that exceeds you both in beauty and power, and like truly blessed is the fruit of that womb. I don't know how all women feel, uh, as we've already established. I do know how I feel, of course, and I have communicated with my woman friends about how they feel, and I do think that in at least all of the women that I know, there seems to be a very deep, uh, instinctual, unquenchable, like it doesn't go away no matter how old you get, no matter how like hopeless your chances are, there's a desire to meet a man of this caliber and to mate with such a man to be chosen by him and to carry his baby and to bring something of his beauty into the world for the next round for the next generation I know I feel that way I know so much of the maneuvering that my female friends are doing in life is just to get themselves in a position where they can get and keep a man like this and 
we don't, you know, have babies as often, I suppose, as our ancestresses did because we don't have to and we can opt out of it and it's like harder than we want our lives to be or we have fertility or hormonal issues or whatever. But it's like even though we're not doing the consequence of that sort of union with that kind of man, we still want the union with a man. Just like the argument I made last time about the beta males inventing feminism so they had more of an opportunity to spread their seed. Like, yeah, of course that seed isn't germinating any more frequently than it recently was, but our bodies don't know that. Like, our bodies don't understand if the pregnancy isn't going to take place. They just understand the act of uh, preparing for the pregnancy or making it possible, and that feels... You know, probably not perfectly satisfying, but definitely intriguing, definitely motivating. I don't have a chart or or a graph here, as I haven't had yet, or any sort of scientific proof that this isn't misogyny, that sort of separating men and women into these two very distinct roles and only seeing them as interested in one another or relating to one another, you know, in the effort to produce babies. I can't say with any sort of authoritative backing that this isn't misogynistic but I I really dig this idea like I love I love the idea of just trafficking with men for the purposes of reproduction Um, it'd be nice to like live in a community where you could kind of see what they're doing from a distance and watch them and their muscles rippling in the sunshine and covered with sweat and watch them you know fighting each other and learning how to be warriors and all the cute things that men do but I wouldn't mind really not having to actually interact with them as much as I currently do like it would be nice if they were a bit more distant and mysterious and I didn't really have to know what they smell like all the time um and I think I think it's possible that men could feel that way like it would be nice if society wasn't so mixed and we came together in a more playful way like in a more ritualized way in order to do this whole thing of hopefully producing the overman uh so with your love zarathustra says to woman may you assail him who inspires you with fear this is honor in a woman i i am not particularly honorable in this regard especially not as an old woman i am tired and uh i don't I just don't have the courage. It's a young woman's game to love a warrior, I'll tell you that. And I tried it as a young woman, and it it was definitely uh, very exciting and very challenging as well. I think that, oh, maybe maybe with a different set of cultural support systems, I could have I could have sustained myself in that discipline. I could have really devoted myself to being in a position. In, in a relationship with a man where I loved him more than he loved me and I've certainly had that experience a lot of times in my life like I think it is a very tricky situation to navigate as a young girl especially with the messaging we get from our current culture that like we're supposed to be equals and we have a maybe unrealistic set of expectations concerning how men are going to value us in relationships which makes us perhaps unwilling to occupy this subordinate role of loving a man more than he loves us but I will say to my own experience like those are the most motivating relationships those are the relationships that cause you to overcome yourself and to really discipline yourself like to choose to 
identify yourself as much as possible with that commander in you, that soul within you that wants you to be the best and most beautiful and most powerful version of yourself because there's just nothing that motivates so much as <laughs> our relationships with the opposite sex, I think. And, you know, that's why I'm approaching all of these arguments from all of these little stories about the relationships between men and women. This is why Nietzsche talks about these things so frequently in his writings. This is very fundamental stuff. Like, it matters a lot to pretty much everybody how and there's so many of the things that we do, men and women, just to maneuver and to position ourselves favorably in that whole mating game and to to come out on top in the mating market. It's it's crucial. Like I think we like to think that we're quote unquote better than that and sort of spiritualize ourselves in that way, but we are animals. We are embodied beings and living beings and life wants to overcome itself and one of the most fundamental basic instinctual and sort of default ways that it accomplishes that will to power is by reproducing and not just human animals but all all sexual creatures in the animal kingdom have very elaborate rituals and rites around this you know, maybe not all animals, but the ones I see on Animal Planet, for sure. The birds and the bees, if you will, the mammal species, fish of all kinds. Like, it's, it's the whole point. It's the whole point of everything, is to get the best possible mate you can and make babies with them. So let man fear woman when she hateth. I think this is kind of the same thing as we have in our hell hath no fury like a woman scorned folk wisdom. I feel like we all understand that well enough that I don't need to expand upon that at all. Let's move on to the next section of the text, which contains a few more hard truths. I think a couple for men as well as for women, so we'll look at those. Whom hateth woman most? Thus spake the iron to the lodestone, I hate thee most, because thou attractest but art too weak to draw unto thee. Let's stop there because I, I think this is one of those um, hard truths for men that I just referred to seconds ago. So women, you know, at least heterosexual women are attracted to men. That's a, pr a pretty non-controversial statement. <laughs> and this, uh, the iron to the lodestone here, I think the iron is woman in this little analogy and the lodestone is man. And who does woman hate? Zarathustra asks, and I think the word despise might work better here. I don't know if there are other translations that use despise in this place. I'm not going to look it up, I'm just going to use it to prove my point. Uh, so women despise men who do not have the strength to pull them in. There's a little poem in the beginning of the gay science entitled Man and Woman, and in that poem Nietzsche says, quote, seize forcibly the wench for whom you feel thus thinks a man, end quote. Tr true statement, right? But I think this probably is the source of enormous cognitive dissonance for men who are not alpha males. Um, I think, you know, and the alpha males, as we discussed already, are the very few. They are the exception rather than the rule. A, a significant percentage of women do want to be seized by an alpha male, like you know, as a case in point, I suppose, look at every romantic comedy ever. Maybe not the more recent ones, but the ones we watched as kids in the early 2000s and the 90s. Like, 
there's a lot of seizing going on. Romantic novels, uh, like those erotica type novels, you know, I guess maybe the older versions too, not the most recent ones, but they're about, there's a lot of seizing. It's very attractive and a very exciting idea for women to be seized by an alpha male. It's, it's quite arousing. But the same women I, who like to be seized by an alpha male, I think, are simultaneously horrified like at even the prospect, even the idea that a weak man or a sick or ugly or, or a man who's unworthy in any way might try to seize them or even that he might think that he has the right to seize them. Like that feels like sexual violation. Being seized by an alpha male feels like sexual ecstasy. And it's, it's not fair, right? Because it's the same exact action being performed by two different men and in the case of the alpha male it is desirable behavior and in the case of the maybe not alpha male it can be so horrifying to a woman so unwanted by her that she might even press like criminal charges against him i think this is why that truth you know zarathustra is kind of going through the night with this hand over the mouth of this little truth um, we're not there in the text yet, but I will skip ahead, nevertheless, to the truth. Spoiler alert. The old woman gives Zarathustra this truth. Quote, you go among women, don't forget your whip. End quote. So this is the same sort of issue that I've just tried to describe about the seizing situation. Um, there is a condition under which a woman loves the whip. And it is the same condition in which she loves to be seized. That is the condition in which a powerful man, a man whose power exceeds hers significantly, um, a man who can give her, you know, at least theoretically, beautiful, healthy babies, a man who can protect her and provide for her and those babies. Uh, I heard Jordan Peterson say this once, so I would like to offer credit where it's due, but women like a man or they feel attracted to a man and are willing to surrender themselves to a man who has a capacity for aggression the way dr peterson said it is that he has to have the capacity to fight off monsters um but you know thieves rapists any sort of con person or interloper a woman wants to know that her man can protect her from the very real and and you know sundry dangers that await not only her but her children in the world and I think a man when he wields the whip uh, he shows her that he has this skill he shows her that he has this capacity for aggression or that he is for that reason worthy of her surrender now on the other hand this is the unfair side of it if a woman does not like the way that a man wields the whip if he uses the whip as like a technological stand-in for his own power which he actually doesn't have much of if he relies on the tool on the technology because his own strength is wanting then the woman won't like the whip because not because she doesn't like a whip but because she doesn't like the man who wields it because she despises that man because he's the same caliber of man as that man who cannot draw her to him or seize seize her skillfully and in a very sexually wanted sort of way this is kind of a guns don't kill people people kill people kind of logic like 
whips don't win women over, men win women over, and it's the men who yield the whip with the most skill, with the most inherent native health, beauty, and power behind that whip wielding, those are the men who use the whip to their own advantage because it's not, the whip is not, it's not a method of force. It's not there to abuse the woman or to punish her or even to control her. Like Nietzsche says, we should not use force with truth and truth is a woman. We should not use force with a woman. The whip is a totem. The whip is a, is a symbol of the man's power and if he doesn't have power, he won't use the whip well. And the woman will know that and she will be unwilling to surrender to him if he doesn't have that sort of finesse with the implement that he has gained through years of applied practice and mastery, not only over this implement, but over his aggression as a whole. And again, I think this can be a source of cognitive dissonance for some men because it's a confusion of cause and effect, right? It's like if a, if a beta male goes in with his whip waving around all crazy and the woman senses his weakness behind this display, she might, she probably will chastise him on moral grounds for using the whip against her, you know, she'll chastise him for his, for his toxic masculinity or for being too mean or for being too hard on her or whatever. And it's confusing to that man because she's not saying what she really means and what she really means but can't say is that she knows that he's weak and he's pitiful and he's not worthy of her surrender but we have this kind of unspoken rule right one of the foundational rules of the sort of morality of pity as Nietzsche calls it is that we aren't allowed to notice these differences not the differences between men and women but also not the differences between man and man we aren't allowed to explicitly call to attention the different caliber the different rank of these different men so a woman can't say like I don't like you you're weak and your inexpert use of the whip has proven my suspicion that you are unworthy of my surrender she just has to say like you're bad you shouldn't do that you shouldn't hurt me you shouldn't be mean I want a good guy I want a nice guy and that's I imagine very confusing to men because women don't really want a good guy or not just a good guy like women want a powerful man they want a strong man they want a beautiful and healthy man I think incidentally this is one of the reasons that porn is so popular I think that pornographic displays allow a lower ranking male to visualize a woman surrendering on the screen she's surrendering in the way that she would surrender to an alpha male and because men are so visual or I don't know for what reason but when they see that they can really imagine themselves being in that position being the alpha being the one to whom that woman is surrendering herself and I think men like women do get a lot of false information about how to interact with the opposite sex and like nobody wants to tell anybody else like you're actually like a five and you're trying to get tens and that's why things aren't working for you you know we always try to make it someone else's fault and everyone deserves the best and everyone's beautiful or handsome or whatever and that's just not the case so when you go out into the world as a beta male I imagine and you're trying to 
sort of mirror this sexual experience that you have seen on porn or that you've heard about from maybe your more alpha buddies but you can't make that happen even if you learn all the hacks and like do all the the dating tricks that are supposed to make women surrender to you like yeah maybe they will temporarily but it's not sustainable because eventually they do figure out that you're full of shit and that you're actually not able to use the whip in an erotic way you're only able to use it in an abusive way and especially as women mature like they're really not interested in being abused anymore and they begin to very readily tell the difference between a man who is cracking that whip from bravado and from pretense and and a man who is finessing that whip from power and mastery and ultimately from a deep respect for the woman with whom he is engaged in this mating ritual, in this wooing rite. And, um, and, you know, I think maybe porn gets addictive because men go out into the world and they expect to just sort of crack that whip and it doesn't really work the way that they had hoped it would. And that's very painful because they're hearing one story about the truth of reality and they're having an experience that does not match that story at all. That is the nature of cognitive dissonance that is um, I think incredibly painful and so of course you're going to go back to the porn or whatever your addiction of choice because you want to anesthetize the pain that's arising from that cognitive dissonance. In section 232 of Beyond Good and Evil which I read part of it last episode Nietzsche says quote woman has so much cause for shame in woman there is so much pedantry, superficiality, schoolmasterliness, petty presumption, unbridledness, and indiscretion concealed. Study only woman's behavior toward children, which has really been best restrained and dominated hitherto by fear of men. So, you know, as another case in point, look at the way I'm handling this metaphorical child. I have uncovered its mouth and I'm allowing it to scream. I'm sure that there is much in this explanation and probably more than I even recognize of pedantry, superficiality, school marmishness, presumption, unbridledness, and indiscretion. So, you know, another case in point for Nietzsche's, uh, I don't know if it's an argument, but a description of woman. It applies to this woman, at least. Does he hate me, therefore? I don't I don't think he hates me. I do think that if he heard me talking about such things and he was aware of the social climate in which I live, that he would probably warn me not to be so unbridled and indiscreet and presumptuous, uh, probably to protect me from any sort of disgruntled person who might hear what I've said here and wish to punish me for saying it rather than to feel their own pain. So this is... A harsh truth, um, a hard truth for men. All of humanity is innocent of its existence, but men are doubly innocent. One cannot have enough salve and gentleness for them. It's probably none of my business. I offer it, I think, because I prefer a harsh truth to cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance to me seems like the ultimate form of torture it's this feeling that everybody else is living in a reality that you don't have any access to or like that you're crazy right it's 
cognitive dissonance essentially is what arises when someone is gaslighting you when someone is telling you that your experience of reality isn't real I feel that I had that experience personally where you know I've I'm of middling attractiveness I'm of middling sort of rank in the mating game and of course I like all women sort of almost regardless of how beautiful they are like want a very high-ranking mate and that that's probably true of men too they want wherever they stand on that ranking they want access to high-ranking sexual partners or at least to a lot of sexual partners and I think you start to realize like where you stand in the in the rank in the order of rank pretty early in life like pretty soon after you start to feel sexy feelings and try to kind of practice those feelings or express those feelings with your peers like you start to figure out based on who responds to you and how they respond to you like where you sort of stand in comparison to your peers and I think from a very young age I realized unconsciously that I was middling in the pack and yet I really wanted to be high up in in the rank and I thought there were all these things I could do like being thin being fit you know that was the tack I took but I'm sure other girls do a lot of other things like with makeup or even cosmetic surgery to sort of change their position in that hierarchy and I, I, I imagine that the same is true for men and we probably get disappointed a lot when we're of middle rank I certainly did and when I would express that feeling of disappointment to my mom or to my peers people would just come back at me with these platitudes about how I needed to just think positive thoughts, I needed to just learn how to love myself, you know, that man was an asshole, he was just a bad person, and that's why he treated me that way, and all of those things, you know, eventually, after hearing them so often, just made me feel very upset and really angry, like, I really do think I was being violated, because I needed someone to level with me, and to tell me, like, yeah, you're right, like, the data that you have crunched and the conclusions that you have come to, those are all true and real things and you are a middle ranking female and maybe here's what you can expect out of your relationships and you should stop punishing yourself and the people that you relate to because you don't get to live like an alpha. And I, I, wonder, if, I wonder if that would be helpful to other people in the world to just, you know, your experience is real. Like what, what you're living through is, it's true. It's the true world. Like this is the true world. There is no ideal world behind this one that we can uncover through either metaphysical ideologies or these hacks, and that's what we're trying to do now, right? Like, we're not very religious as a culture anymore, but we're trying to, like, attack everything technologically and form the world into the image of our ideal, and we're trying to hack life and hack our relationships, and I think your order, your position in the order of rank, like, it can budge a little bit if you are disciplined and take very good care of yourself, like, you'll be on the higher end of your range, and if you are, you know, lazy and eat potato chips, you're going to probably be on the lower end of your range, but if you came into the world as a six, you're never going to be a ten, and that's just one, that's just another one of those harsh truths, but but, you know, nobody wants to tell you that, of course, because nobody makes money off of you if you, um, 
if you don't believe that you can't ultimately change your position and you just have to accept your fate to some degree and you know also we run on this morality of pity like I mentioned already and we're not really allowed to tell people you know the first rule of the morality of pity is don't talk about the differences in rank do not alert anybody that you are aware of the fact that they are not pretty or they are not strong or they are not handsome or they are not intelligent or whatever um just our moral strictures really prevent us from being honest with each other in that way but i think a harsh truth is again preferable to cognitive dissonance because the harsh truth hurts for a little while like ripping off a band-aid and cognitive dissonance hurts like rubbing your poop in your wound and letting it fester without any attention or medical care and you know, some pain makes us stronger and some pain kills us. And I think cognitive dissonance is the kind of pain that kills you. It eats away at you like a cancer. And um, a harsh truth is just, you know, like maybe a punch in the gut. Like it's not great, but you definitely can move on from it and still live a very valuable and interesting life. Nietzsche says in Ecce Homo, quote, feminism, whether in mankind or in man, is likewise a barrier to my writings. With it, no one could ever enter into this labyrinth of fearless knowledge. To this end, a man must never have spared himself. He must have been hard in his habits in order to be good-humored and merry among a host of inexorable truths. In Beyond Good and Evil, section 260, Nietzsche says, similarly, quote, the noble man takes pleasure in subjecting himself to severity and harshness and has reverence for all that is severe and hard." End quote. Nietzsche's writings are indeed a host of hard and inexorable truths. One must have a proclivity for such things and it's possible I think that Nietzsche's writings are he says that his writings like one is privileged to hold one of Nietzsche's books in his hands and it isn't, he's not writing, like I said already several times, for the rule. He's writing for the exception. And maybe what I experience as cognitive dissonance is like a psychic balm for some people, and they don't want to be disabused of their delusions. And all I'm doing is hurting them by trying to bring those things to light. That's not my intention, really. Like, the harsh truth feels like a tonic to me. It just feels so healing and helpful and. That's the reason I take my hand off of this little squealing, naughty, crying baby's mouth and let it scream its little truth into the night. And that may be ill-advised. You can leave a comment in the comment section and, you know, respond to, to that and maybe tell me how you feel about the difference between sort of accepting something that's hard to accept and living in a little delusion that sort of low level tortures you for the rest of your life with cognitive dissonance. We'll look just briefly at one harsh truth here for women. Zarathustra says, man says I will and woman says he wills. So this is just a brief, a very brief restatement of what we already read in section 68 of The Gay Science, um, in which the sage described man's attribute as will and women's attribute as willingness. 
And this is where, you know, we first encountered that law. This is a hard truth. Humanity is innocent of it, and women are doubly innocent. One cannot have salve and kindness enough for them. It was my intention with all of this <laughs> truth revealing to offer some salve and some gentleness, some oil and some kindness, as Walter Kaufman translates that section. Uh, let me know if I accomplished that objective or if I failed abjectly, if you wish. And uh, we will pick up the topic of Psychologist of the Eternal Womanly, I think, one more time in a third episode. And then this podcast for the love of Nietzsche will look in a different direction at some other aspect of the myriad, sundry, wonderful, engaging writings of um, my beloved Nietzsche.